The Jewish views on Palestine Expo. The green light is given for a London-based event feared to have links to terror groups. Sephardi Voices hear about the exhibition which looks at the experiences of Jewish immigrants to the UK from across the Islamic world. And we meet the Chazan turned glassblower. Hear all about Jason Blair's extraordinary career change. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. A pro-Palestine event due to be held in London will go ahead despite government threats to ban it over alleged links to Hamas. The Palestine Expo is expected to draw around 10,000 people to the Queen Elizabeth II Centre on the 8th and 9th of July. The Community Secretary, Sajid Javid, has previously written a letter to the organisers, Friends of Al-Aqsa, to express concerns over their links to terror groups. A parade in Chicago celebrating the lesbian community barred three Jewish women for carrying rainbow-coloured Jewish pride flags which have a white Star of David in the centre. A witness told a local newspaper that the women were told the flags made people feel unsafe and that the march was anti-Zionist. One of the women said it was hard to understand the idea of inclusion when you exclude people for something like that. Jewish Care and Norwood say none of their buildings have failed fire safety tests in the wake of the Grenfell Tower tragedy. Jewish Care said their fire risk assessments are up to date, whilst Norwood commented that none of their properties had cladding and they're tested and reviewed across each year. The Israeli Air Force struck two targets in Gaza hours after a rocket launched from the coastal strip landed in an unpopulated area of southern Israel. The country's response was on two Hamas military targets, one in northern Gaza and the other in the south. The IDF reported no injuries as a result of the retaliatory strikes. And finally, the family of the comedian Sasha Baron Cohen has donated two life-saving pieces of equipment to Israel's medical emergency service Magandavid Odom. Baron Cohen's mother, Daniela, was at the ceremony in Tel Aviv, at which she dedicated the two medicycles to her late husband, Gerald. She revealed she'd chosen one of her son's more uncontroversial slogans, Respect, as made famous by his Ali G character, to go on the back of one of the vehicles. That's it. Here's Andrew with the sport. Thank you very much, Viv. Lance Stroll wrote himself into the Formula One history books after he became the youngest ever driver to claim a podium finish. The 18-year-old Canadian finished last weekend's Azerbaijan Grand Prix in third place and afterwards said he was simply lost for words with his historic finish. Several members of England's under-21 football squad have paid an emotional visit to the Auschwitz concentration campsite. In Poland, while competing in the under-21 European Championships, Captain James Ward-Prowse said it was moving and a very humbling experience for all of us. And finally, Tal Ben Chaim is set to become one of the highest paid footballers in the Czech Republic League after he signed a four-year contract with Sparta Prague. The 27-year-old midfielder, who had spent the previous four seasons at Maccabi Tel Aviv, is set to earn 1 million euros a season. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed, and welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is features editor Fran Wolfish 
and online editor Jack Mendel. Welcome to you both. Let us start off with the front page, shall we, as we normally do. And the headline reads, The Walls Not For All. This, of course, is referring to the ongoing saga of the Kotel. And they don't necessarily now have an egalitarian place, or not long term anyway. Is that right? Yes, well, what we heard this week, obviously, is that the Haredi United Torah Judaism Party and the Sephardi Orthodox Shas Party, who are both part of this coalition with the Israeli government, threatened to quit unless a previous agreement that they'd come to was overturned. And that agreement was regarding a separate prayer space for progressive services for progressive people. Understandably, they're very, very upset by this decision. It does seem like a U-turn. And more than that, it actually feels a little bit like blackmail that the parties that are part of this coalition are saying, well, we'll just pull out the government, we'll make everything collapse unless you overturn this. So you can understand perhaps where the anger and the disappointment is coming from. But then again, at the same time, if you're talking about a party who fundamentally bases themselves on the more religious elements of Judaism, it shouldn't really come as a massive surprise that they are not for an egalitarian part of the Western Wall. I think what this decision really shows is that Israel is fighting itself as to whether it is a state for Jews, all Jews, progressive Jews, Orthodox Jews, atheist Jews, or it is a Jewish state. And it's defined by certain t- a type of Judaism, which has been shown by Shas and the uh, United Torah Judaism Party as being very strict, very orthodox, and with sway over government. And this decision, as a result, has really offended and worried a lot of millions of progressive Jews around the world who all of a sudden don't feel welcome in Israel at the holiest site for Judaism. It is bizarre, though, the reaction to this, because to me, I'm talking as someone who is a progressive Jew myself. I've always said that I am reform. And whenever I go to Israel, one of the first places I try and go to is the Kotel. But I wouldn't think twice about just going to the men's section. I understand. Of course, I understand men and women treated as equal and all of that. There's no question about that. That goes without saying. But it's never bothered me at the Kotel. And it's really interesting to see how worked up people do get about this. And that's really interesting because I'm actually an Orthodox Jew and yet I can see it from the progressive viewpoint as well on this story. But I think what this story really does highlight is that there are divisions within our own Jewish community and that's actually quite sad at a time when the one thing that we don't need is disunity. We actually need to come together, especially in Israel. So I do hope that they manage to resolve this situation. Be interesting to see what happens. Now, Speaking of division, there is, technically speaking, further division to be discussed with El Al, who at the moment are going through a bit of a battle when it comes to seating arrangements on aircrafts themselves. Yes, this is the case of Holocaust survivor Rene Rabinowitz, who actually sued the airline for discrimination because a flight attendant asked her to move seats on a flight two years ago at the request of a strictly orthodox male passenger. Apparently, this has been the policy of the airline for a while, that if a strictly orthodox male asks to not be seated next to a woman, then a member of LL staff will then go up to a passenger and ask them to move. This has gone to the court, and the court has now decided that actually LL can't do that anymore. It is discrimination. 
I think that's probably the right move. At the end of the day, if the male passenger who's strictly orthodox feels uncomfortable, perhaps he should be the one who moves and not getting everyone else to move. You see, what's interesting about this story is because I distinctly remember we discussed this a few months back on the Jewish Views, and it was to do with an EasyJet flight of similar ilk where male passengers were refusing to sit next to female passengers. And it was actually one of our schmooze discussions. And my problem with this personally, and I know I'm not encouraged to have an opinion, is that I'm actually torn. I genuinely am torn because I feel it's their every right to have their religious beliefs. And therefore, if that is genuinely what they believe as part of their religion, then airlines providing services for religious passengers should consider that and keep that in mind when they do do things like seating arrangements. But then at the same time, I think, well, part of religion is that it's a personal belief system and you shouldn't go inflicting it necessarily on others. And when it starts impacting on other people's lives, such as where someone sits on an aircraft when they're innocently trying to go on holiday, that is starting to impact on other people's lives. I think that there's a very simple solution to this. And that is if orthodox passengers don't want to sit next to a woman on a plane, they need to pay for a more expensive ticket or pay for the ticket next to them. But then isn't that discriminating against the more religious no, passengers? It's, it's their personal view. It's their personal view. It, no one's forcing them to have that view. No one's forcing them to touch anyone. They're being allocated a seat and they haven't gone to the trouble of making sure that their beliefs are going to be catered for. So I don't see why anyone else should have to suffer for that or have their flight disrupted or have a flight from hell. But equally at the same time, it's only fair to say that they shouldn't have the flight from hell either. And clearly that obviously matters to them as a religious individual not to have to go through that. I think we could actually debate this for quite a long time and we probably shouldn't. There are other stories we need to look at. Fran, you have been uh, making acquaintances with rather famous people. Well, you always do anyway, but let's <laughs> let's be more clear about this, shall we? If I was to say, Jerry, Jerry, that might give a little clue as to who you've been meeting. I am, of course, talking about Barack Obama. No, I'm joking. Jerry Springer, you've been meeting. What happened when you met Mr. Springer? Yes, the lovely Jerry Springer. Well, actually, this isn't the first time I've interviewed him, Phil, just to let you know for the record there. That put my, me in my place. Wow. My A-list celebrity ridden life. But yes. Wouldn't you love to look at Fran's phone? She must have loads of contacts in there that you could do a lot of damage with. But anyway, what happened when you met him again? Again. Yes. Well, I actually, it was quite funny. I actually reminded him of what he said to me last time, which was when the US election campaign was in full pelt. And at the time, he actually said of then candidate Donald Trump, he's dangerous, he's a bad example of what America stands for. He was even optimistic that Trump would be rejected. So obviously, the first thing I had to say to him was, well, Jerry, what happened? He obviously laughed. He had quite a lot to say, however, on the topic of Trump. He still believes that, you know, he has no business being president. And Except the fact that he was democratically elected. So technically, one could argue now he does have business being president. Well, I, I think really what he's referring to is obviously the election process, yes, did say that Trump had won. But he's saying that, you know, Trump has done other things, which you could argue with, but it, Springer feels, you know, this Muslim ban that keeps coming up, the way that he wants to deport Hispanics, the way that he wants to disenfranchise blacks, all of that has essentially made Springer not really warm up to Donald Trump's administration, shall we say. Springer was making these comments in association with his whistle-stop tour of the UK last week for World Jewish Relief. 
Jerry Springer had been invited as the keynote speaker at two dinners in London and Manchester. And WJR is actually an organisation that's very close to his heart because it was actually through WJR that his parents were essentially rescued from Germany before the war. I think they were actually amongst the last hundred people to get out of Germany. So if it hadn't been for them, well, we wouldn't have had them. We wouldn't have had Jerry Springer. So... For that, we can be thankful. And and he is very thankful. Goodness me. Okay, well, let's see. What page can we read that on if we want to read the full article this week? Yep, that is on page 28. Excellent. All right. Well, just finally, we've got time to really quickly shoehorn in the Aliar list. What's this? Yes, you've, you've seen 30 under 30 and 40 under 40. Well, now we've launched a new initiative called the Aliar list. Basically, We are looking for Brits who have moved to Israel and have had an impact on Israel, whether that be in politics, culture, the military, anywhere else. We'll be revealing the list of Olim to coincide with the centenary of the Balfour Declaration in November. This is in association with the Jewish Agency and UJIA. Excellent. And how do people apply for that? Yeah, our readers and listeners have until 31st of July to nominate the Olim that they feel are deserving of a place on our 50-strong list. And you can go online for all the details, jewishnews.co.uk forward slash Aliyah. Excellent. Thank you both very much indeed. That's where we'll have to leave it for a look at the paper for this week. But don't forget, you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. As you heard a little earlier on in the news, the green light has been given to the Palestine Expo. Concerns have been raised that the organisers have alleged links to terror group Hamas. The event is billed as the biggest social, cultural and entertainment event on Palestine to ever take place in Europe, much to the outcry of numerous individuals within the community, including Chairman of the Zionist Federation, Paul Charney. I've been speaking to Paul to get his reaction to the Expo, and I started by asking him how he felt in his position as the head of the ZF, and that the government has not managed to prevent this event from happening. I feel that uh, the government allowing the Palestinian exhibition to go ahead is an infringement on my rights, on my freedoms to live safely and comfortably and freely in this country. We've seen what extremism can bring. We know the sources of extremism. And this Palestinian exhibition is not going to be a simple festival for culture and for heritage. But how do we know that? Because with respect, you're not necessarily involved in the organising of it. So how do you know that that's going to be the case? So if you have a look at the speakers that they've invited to talk, these are people like Ben White. These are people that are notoriously anti-Zionist speakers. There are political events. They've advertised a whole range of side events which will discuss boycotting, denigrating, discussing Israeli potential war crimes, apartheid. If this was a festival to simply celebrate the Palestinians, I would have no problem with this. Let's give the benefit of the doubt. Let us assume that this genuinely is an event, a festival designed to celebrate Palestinian culture, exactly the same way that you wouldn't have a problem with anyone celebrating Israeli culture. Why is there a problem celebrating Palestinian culture? 
if this was an exhibition, an expo simply to celebrate the culture of Palestinians and, and, and Palestine and such, then I would say go well, go do that, celebrate it, bring peace, bring harmony, bring positive attitude, bring culture, bring art, bring poetry, bring song, bring all that is good that we know that can be good in the Middle East. But the friends of Al-Aqsa who are organizing this event, and they have been warned by the government that their links to Hamas and Hezbollah might might have seen a ban to this exhibition, which unfortunately it didn't. Its speakers, its events, if you have a look at the events that they are producing, many of them, not all of them, but many of them are to do with either boycotting or discussing Israel as an apartheid state. One of their events has Jews for boycotting Israeli goods. Uh, Their speakers are notorious in infamy, and their infamy is purely based on bashing Israel at any instant. So, yes, if they were to celebrate Palestinian culture, then go well. But if they're going to start with their, what we expect them to do, Israeli denigration event, then they need to go home. Isn't the truth of the matter, though, that this sort of event would only appeal to a certain type of individual exactly the same way? And this is not me sort of necessarily putting anybody down exactly the same way that a pro-Israel event would appeal to a certain type of individual. Does that not mean that because it would be potentially quite a niche market that therefore that there isn't that much risk involved with having this kind of event, which at the end of the day could just be seen as freedom of speech? I would be happy with that narrative if that were to be entirely true. And the a lot of the advertising around this exhibition does focus simply on culture. It does focus on, on heritage, albeit if you have a look, deeper look, you can see the other events that they're having. And for them, they are advertising to just like people like you and me who want to go and celebrate Israeli culture on the Palestinian side. And they will therefore draw in people who simply want to celebrate Palestine and cel- celebrate some, some of the Arab cultures. And then they will be exposed to certain hate speakers. They'll be exposed to anti-Israel speakers. They'll be exposed to a a lot of the half-truths and many lies that they spout about Israel. And my big problem with that is that it's a thin veil. This thin veil, this thinly covered veil of an apparent cultural celebration is another extremist route to what we've seen is terror terror on our streets and if the government don't deal with the ground the ground issues of extremism and this is certainly a lead into one of them you know we've seen a couple of the terrorists we know who the terrorists are in london and in manchester and some of them have had very close links and ties to anti-israel events and anti-israel organizations you know there is a huge crossover I'm not saying that they shouldn't celebrate Palestine and the Palestinian culture so long as they do that. And that's where we draw the line. Okay. well, if we look at it from the other point of view here, there are a lot of people who are, as it were, on the other side that would say that Zionists are terrorists. Now, we know because of having an interest in Israel that that is not true. Zionism is not automatic equality to someone of a terrorist state. But just because we know that, that means that we can rest assured that we're safe in that knowledge. But they probably don't see themselves as being linked to terrorists. Do you see what I mean? So therefore, 
how is it okay for you to sit here and say that this kind of event is linked to terrorism, but yet an Israeli event isn't? Where, where's the distinction here? So, I mean, just to be clear that this event, I don't know whether it's directly or not directly linked to terrorism, but the, the roots and the seeds of terrorism start from extremism and extremism starts from, or well, one of the reasons is simply anti-Israel rhetoric lies and a reason for people to get angry. And and for me, that's, that's a major problem, one, one of the roots of extremism, whereas Israel and any Israeli event is celebrating the democracy of Israel, is celebrating the human rights, is celebrating everything good that is about Israel, about bringing about the state of Israel. Zionism is simply the self-determination of that state, of, of the Jews and the right to have a state of Israel. Uh, the, Israel is quite rightly recognized around the world as a free country, a freedom for all people. It defends itself vigorously. It would not allow an Al-Aqsa cultural event in it because it understands the roots of extremism in Israel far better than, than they do in, in Europe and, and in the UK. So there is no comparison between a democratically strong country that is being celebrated as opposed to individual small groups with links to terror apparently, apparently celebrating Palestinian culture. Paul Charney, chairman of the Zionist Federation, expressing some of his concerns over the forthcoming Palestine Expo due to take place in London on the 8th and 9th of July. I would like to point out at this stage that an attempt to contact the organisers was made by this programme, but at the time of recording they had yet to get back to us. However, the invitation absolutely stands for them to appear on The Jewish Views in future episodes as and when they'd like. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, James Max will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Clive Roslin is taking a very well-earned week off, so today James and Tony will be joined by the founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carbritz, and community volunteer Liz Hirschkorn. They'll be discussing religion. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to Jason Blair, the Chazan turned glass blur. But first, an exhibition currently running at the Jewish Museum looks at the experiences of Jewish immigrants to the UK from across the Islamic world. Safadi Voices, Jews from North Africa, the Middle East and Iran, is on until the 7th of September at the site in Camden. And art editor Kate Fulton has been finding out more about it by speaking to chair of Safadi Voices, Alec Nakamuli. Kate started by asking Alec to tell us exactly why Sephardi Voices was set up in the first place. Sephardi Voices is an oral history project. So an oral history project is we record testimonies of people who have been through significant events in their life. And what Sephardi Voices is about is the Jews from Arab countries, North Africa and Iran, who were forced to leave their country of birth and who resettled in the UK. And how come they haven't got a voice? What do we need a special organisation for? Generally speaking, the history of the Jews from that part of the world is very little known. We are talking here about thriving and flourishing communities which have today virtually totally disappeared. And when was the, the exodus, if you like, and from which countries? We're talking here about sort of Iran, the Middle East, North Africa. For instance, if we look from Iraq, it was between 1940 and 1970. 
If you look at Egypt, where I was actually born, it was between 1947-1948 and 1967. So basically, the major conflicts with Israel, the War of Independence, the Suez Crisis, etc. And was the reason for the exodus, if you like, similar in all the different regions that you mentioned? Was it usually conflict followed by persecution? It was generally linked to, well, some of them started very early on. Like in Iraq, you had the Fahud, which was a program in the 1940s, because there was a very right-wing, in fact, even pro-Nazi government in Iraq at the time. In Egypt, the first wave of exodus came after the Israeli War of Independence in 48-49, but the major sort of exodus was around the Suez Crisis. To give you an idea, in Egypt, the Jewish community at its peak numbered 80 to 85,000, and there are today 12 Jews left in Egypt. If we look at Iraq, 30% of the population of Baghdad was Jewish at the turn of the 20th century. There are today five Jews left in Iraq. There are some countries, actually, who have even achieved what Hitler failed to achieve. They are Judenrein. They are totally cleansed of Jews. There are no Jews left in Algeria, in Libya, in Sudan, and probably not in Syria. And those were communities which were upward of 100,000. Gosh, and they all left and they came where? The majority went to Israel. Others went to countries of their nationality. If they were British, they came to the UK. If they came from the French colonies, sort of Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia, then they went to France. But a lot of them who were nationals of those countries, so Egyptian, Iraqi, etc., Syrians, were stripped of their nationality as they left and were given a sort of exit visa with a stamp on it, say, exit with no return. And when people came to the UK, whereabouts did they settle and how many are we talking? I can't really give you a figure of how much settled in the UK, but a lot of them congregated around, obviously, the Spanish-Portuguese synagogue in Lauderdale Road. And then quite a few have fanned out around Wembley, northwest London. So you do have a Mizrahi, Safadi communities also on the periphery. And you all came together. How was Sephardi Voices created as an organisation? Well, Sephardi Voices, the initiative came, the idea, let's say, came from Dr. Henry Green, who is a professor at the University of Miami, who said, look, the history of the Jews from Arab countries, this Misrahim, the Sephardim, is very little known. So we took up the idea here in the UK. So we created Sephardi Voices UK, we're a registered charity, and we have, up until today, recorded about 80 interviews we have done 10 short films. Uh, these are video interviews. We've done 10 short films. And the interesting thing is that they are deposited at the British Library. And these films and videos are to give people an idea of their, of their heritage, those Sephardi? It is the idea of obviously transmitting the heritage. It is also as research for the history of the Jews of that part of the world. I mean, the interviews last about two to three hours. They cover the family background of the interviewee, their religious traditions, their family life in their country of origin. Then we look at the circumstances of their departure. And then we look at how did they resettle here in the UK and how they rebuilt their lives and the education their children got, etc., etc. 
These testimonies were all put together, I understand, in an exhibition, which at the, is at the Jewish Museum yes, at the moment. Yes, so at the moment there is an exhibition at the Jewish Museum in the entrance hall. And if you go there, first of all, there are some uh, sort of background panels which explain the history of those communities. Also explain the slight difference between Sephardim and Mizrahim. Because generally speaking, people think of, okay, European Jews, Ashkenazis, the rest Sephardis. No, uh, Sephardi, strictly speaking, are the ones who were expelled from Spain and then fanned across the world. Uh, the Mizrahim, don't forget, settled much earlier uh, when uh, Babylon conquered and destroyed the first temple. They took all the Jews to Babylon, and that's where we had the Babylonian Talmud, etc. So you have a whole lot of Jews who are there who never went to Spain. Is there much of a difference between the practices and the traditions, if you like, of the Mizrahim and the Sephardim? Not really. The ritual is more or less the same in the synagogues. There is a much more influential of Arabic amongst the Mizrahim, but the main minhag is, you know, pretty much the same, yes. But of course, you know, that Sephardim speak Ladino. Jews from Arab countries were mainly fluent in Arabic, totally integrated in their in the local population because those were thriving communities which contributed a lot also to the political and cultural development of their countries. What was the influence, if you like, of the Arab speakers and the Arab culture into Judaism that they practised? A lot of them would actually speak Arabic at home and then went to schools of the Alliance Israelite Universelle or others where they learned English or they learned French but very much they were Arabic, totally integrated. I just want to go back to the exhibition itself. What yes. else can we expect to see? So you've, you said you've got these panels. We've and got the panels and all that, and we've also got three video screens where you can actually see some of the interviews, some of the shorts. So what about the Jewish Museum? So at the Jewish Museum, we have an exhibition which has some background historical panels. It has a map which shows the decline in those communities, like giving the numbers in 1948 and the numbers today. And most probably interestingly, there are, are short films, which were shorter versions of the interviews. So you can sit there and listen with earphones, or and they're subtitled also to some of the interviews. And it gives you a very interesting outlook on the history of those Jews. Does any part of the exhibition look in the homes of the Mizrahi, the Sephardi? Yes, there is a whole panel of photos which the interviewees show us when we interview them. And they're photos of their homes back in Egypt, in Iraq, in Morocco, photos of their schools, photos of the Maccabi sports clubs, and all photos mainly of Jewish life in those countries. Alec Nakamuli, chair of Sephardi Voices, speaking to arts editor Kate Fulton there about the Sephardi Voices, Jews from North Africa, the Middle East and Iran exhibition on at the Jewish Museum in Camden until the 7th of September 2017. For more information, then go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. 
In just a moment will be this week's schmooze. A reminder, we now live stream our schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm British Summertime. That important address is coming up, but it means that you can comment along as the discussion unfolds. And of course, we'll try and read out some of those comments as and when we get them. It's just another way that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. And of course, those details can be found at our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Now, have you ever felt like a change of career? haven't we all, but rarely do we act on it. Well, Jason Blair has proved anything is possible if you put your mind to it. Jason is first and foremost a fully-fledged Khazan, but he's recently got into the art of glass blowing. Best of all, he manages it from his studio set up in his garden. Yep. Community editor Diana Doman has been speaking to Jason to find out more about his extraordinary career path. She started by asking him to tell us How his lungs fare in such conditions? It's all about technique, which, as far as singing goes, is about lung capacity and blowing and what you're going to do. So, for example, it's all about control. And if you're singing, it's all about control. It's all about singing an even breath and being able to have a good flow. And it's the same with glass blowing. If you blow too hard, it'll go pear-shaped. That's where the phrase comes from. And it'll blow out on one side as you're rotating it. So it is all about control. That's very interesting. So that's where the expression pear-shaped comes from. Yes, that's where the expression pear-shaped. It's all gone pear-shaped. And another expression from glass blowing is having an iron in the fire. So, for example, you would warm your iron first, blowing iron, otherwise the glass won't stick to it and you wouldn't be able to gather it. So you have your irons in the fire ready for blowing. Right. And there are some phrases here that I've been looking up. Pipe, stringer, frit and marva. They sound like one of those trick questions on Round Britain Quiz or something. You know, what is this connected to? Can you describe them to me? Certainly. So a blowing iron, it sounds like it's a big clunky thing. It's not. It's a hollow steel pipe which is slightly flared at one end and it's narrower at the other end. The narrow end is what you put your mouth against and you do things, for example, there's something called a thumbing technique where you will blow some air into the iron once it's got glass on the end of it and then you'll trap it with the end of your thumb. And what that does is as the heat expands the air, that creates an air pressure which then blows the glass for you. So you don't actually have to use your breath. Because sometimes if you're blowing glass, it needs to be completely horizontal and level, which of course is very difficult to do if you're holding it, whereas, because you're turning it at the same time. So if it's on the blowing bench, you can have it and put your thumb over the end of it. If you don't want to do it and you're doing something else, you'd need a second person to sit at the end of the bench and blow while you're turning and working the glass. And, of course, you're working on your own. What sort of temperatures are you working in in the studio? So on a normal day, the studio goes up to about 30 degrees. On the hot days in the summer, I turn it off because the studio will go to 45, 50 degrees quite quickly. 
Oh, my goodness. So last week, you or the week before, you must have been in real trouble then while it was 30 degrees outside. No, it wasn't, because what I did is I turned it off. The year before, I had tried to blow glass. I usually start blowing glass about 6.30 in the morning. Um, last year, during the hot weather, by 11.30, I was done. I physically couldn't go on and I was ill for about a day. So I just turned the furnace off. So I've learned from that and I don't, I don't have the furnace on when it is so hot outside. Right. I'm now trying to see the connection between being a husband and an actor and glass blowing. How did all this begin? So I have been a husband for many years and I've been a singer for even more years. I went and I trained with English National Opera for a year under Mary King and Janice Kelly where I learned how to perform and sing and move and I was very fortunate that I got to perform at the Royal Opera House in our graduating year of 2006 but it's creative it's creativity and I've always been creative I've always done creative things and when I was doing weddings it used to irk me that people would be smashing light bulbs underneath the chuppah. Look, if you go back 100 years, 200 years, when people were getting married in the Jewish community, it's like that scene from Fiddler on the Roof. You know, when the community gathers together, one person gives a pillow, another person gives a duvet, another person gives a chair. Everybody gives something to the happy couple to start them in their new home. And obviously something that would often be given is a set of glasses, Well, then that couple would take one of those glasses from their brand new set and they'd smash it under the chuppah. And that would lead to a genuine sense of loss. They'd have a set of glasses which is now incomplete and they'd have that genuine sense of loss of having broken something which has just been given to them and and they're going to feel that genuine regret at the destruction of Jerusalem which is what the whole point of it is. So, of course, scroll forwards 200 years We've got people getting married in United Shores. They're smashing a light bulb under the chuppah just for ease and convenience. But it means nothing. And it was getting to the stage where people would be getting to that part of the ceremony going, yeah, now it's my chance to smash the glass. And that's the wrong view. That's just completely the wrong view to have. I wanted to do something that would bring back that feeling of genuine sense of loss and regret. So what I do is I blow the glass in lots of different colours and they are beautiful. They really are pretty and they're designed to break, specially designed to break. So that when the bride and groom, they come here and they look at the glass, they go, wow, it's really nice. It seems such a shame to break it. I'm like, yeah, you've got it. You've absolutely got it. That is the point. And that is the point. And then afterwards, of course, I can make it into something for them. But that's where the germ of and the seed of where it started came from. Chazan turned glassblower Jason Blair talking to community editor Diana Toman there about his fascinating choice of career path. And it does just go to show that you really can do anything you want to if you put your mind to it. It really is quite extraordinary. And I would urge you to go onto our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you will find a link to Jason's website, where in turn you'll be able to see some examples of his rather fine work. And believe me, it is well worth a look at. You're listening to The Jewish Fuse. This is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where guests join us in the studio to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. 
As you may have noticed, Clive Roslin. This is not his voice. This is not he. He's taking a very well-earned week off. So instead, you've got me, James Max, sitting in for him. Hello. Joining Tony Honigberg and me today, we have the founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carbritz, and community volunteer Liz Hirschkorn. Hello. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Hello. Lovely to be. Well, it's very nice to have you here. (laughs) Now, you don't even know what the subject is. We don't. We've been trying to get out of you. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So the subject today is actually not based on anything we've heard earlier or indeed anything that you may have been forewarned about or could have possibly read about in the news or anything else because you're lucky enough to have a self-confessed... Well, this is what it says here. Lapsed Jew. I would describe myself as culturally Jewish, i.e. I eat Jewish. Can you tell? So <laughs> does that mean does that mean you're Jewish? Yes, Jewish. Yeah. So I, I'm sitting in Clive's chair this week, and I want to ask the question to all of you: How important is religion to us as individuals, and what do we believe the point of it is? Liz, let's start with you. How important is the religious side of Judaism to you, and why? Well, it, it is such an individual thing, but it's important to me. I think I'm more traditional, though. It, okay. In, what in does traditional belief? mean? Well, to I, you? I, I, I keep kosher. I, I celebrate Why? the festivals. Why? Because well, because it's important to me but, about see, being Jewish. But I respect people that don't. I'm not saying you know. Do you do has the whole milk and meat thing? I do. I keep it oh. separate. You yeah. see. The only benefit of this whole keeping kosher thing would be two dishwashers, which to me would mean clean and dirty. Yeah, I, don't, I, I don't have two dishwashers. Oh, you don't? I'm, no, I'm not, as, I'm not orthodox in the way you know, right. an orthodox person wouldn't... Because this is, this is what makes Judaism different mm. to me from any other religion. Every other religion, this isn't all this huge debate about, well, I do this and I, I don't really like that bit, so I'm not going to do that, but, but I'm very Jewish. I, could we have no, this? see, I used to think it was a bit hypocritical, like, you know, you have to do everything on, or nothing, but I, yeah. I don't agree with that You do now. what you like. I think you do what you feel is right. If you, you know, I, I do I think what I'm I think, I think Liz is right. You, you're being Rather Jew, than Jewish do nothing. is... is you can take bits of it and do the bits that you want. Right. Now, now we keep kosher at home to a certain degree. I mean, we don't buy kosher milk and we don't have kosher cheese. And often we no, don't buy kosher bread. No, same I'm a vegetarian. Well, I, I buy cheese that I like to eat. You know, I never look on the, on the <laughs> label to change, right? You buy cheese! That's Jewish! That's Jewish! Exactly. But it tastes so nice! I must have but, but, of course, if we have if we have people over that are orthodox and, and are strictly kosher, then right. we will buy in... If they if we're doing a milky meal, let's say, then we'll buy in kosher cheese. But that, not necessarily degrees, kosher milk, though. I don't think Do you, I could have anybody that... Orthodox that they'd need kosher cheese. Oh, you see, we've got friends that are, so, so uh, they come no, over. Yes, but they're not. Well. They're, but of course, they haven't said that they're not as orth- that orthodox that they wouldn't eat in my well, house. Exactly. Anybody remotely But then we keep we keep me, could meat and milk separately. So. Right. So, uh, Judy, let me just come back to you. Let's kind of just start off this this original question, and then and then see if we can untangle it. Uh, we, I've, whole... got a, I've got a question here from from oh, yes. uh, Ben. He says, firstly, you're not sitting in Clive's seat, so, so okay. that's wrong. Thank said, you, Ben. Uh, uh, I, I don't know, but um, I said, know. And he also says there are religious, observant, cultural and ethnic Jews, especially when recognising that there is not reform or conservative movements in Sephardic Judaism. Sephardic Judaism doesn't have reform and doesn't have conservative. It has Sephardic Judaism. OK. Uh, and Sephardic Judaism, it, they're, they're much more... 
loose about what goes on. They're easier oh. to get on with. Well, that, I, I'm not a safari Joe, but I'm quite loose but about I, I, my, <laughs> my background is, though. S- I'm, I'm, well, Babylonian. <laughs> No idea. This is, to be honest, yeah. if you're listening now, this is I've all Greek to me. So, Judy. Yes. The religious side of Judaism is that important to you? Before we get onto the culture and how you not interpret remotely. It? Okay. Why not? Because I'm culturally Jewish. I run the Jewish Poetry Society. I was going society, to say yes, which started years ago. I was working with Phil on a Jewish radio well, Philip station. Philip, as in our producer, actually works. <laughs> <laughs> and I bet you were able that out. <laughs> I was doing a series of programs on right. poetry, Jewish poetry, because okay. I'm a poet. And and you don't know it? Oh, you know, you don't. And so. I was interviewing various Jewish poets, and a friend said to me, "Is there a Jewish poetry society?" And I said, "I think there's about to be." And we formed it. That's ten years ago, okay. and it started from there. But now, I guess we're thirty percent not Jewish members. Oh, and they're just obviously culturally to- interested. Yes, and, and they're welcome. Yes. So that's very interesting. Yeah, actually. totally. But isn't it, I, I still find that, of course, everybody in their own religious belief will make their own decisions about what they believe in, what they what don't, they whether they support things in, in because culturally they've been brought up to do it, whether, for example, I've got three elder brothers and we all have different variants of, mm. of how far yeah. we go. And and weirdly or not weirdly, there are certain things I don't have in my house. I don't have bacon, I don't have shellfish and all that stuff. But on the other hand, I do pop to my local supermarket and buy their fine burgers and all the other stuff because I really can't be bothered doing the whole kosher yeah, but butcher you're still thing. doing something though, yes. aren't you? But I, 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 I do so that because it's because just a small you thing. That's because Judaism is a culture more than a religion, I and think. And that annoys found- me about myself because I'm not religious, I'm not orthodox, but what I eat in the house, I eat out the house. So I don't keep a kosher home and then go out and eat non-kosher meat because I believe it's my body that's important and not my home. You can move home, but you can't move, move body. body a lot of interesting. And so... You could move your body a lot easier if you mm-hmm. shed some pounds. Well, and that's, that's, a, that's, that's another thing that I want to say. As I know. <laughs> you, but that's, that's something else people, I wanted to get into. But then. why do you think, then, a lot of people do keep kosher at home, but they eat anything when they're But out. I think that's so weird. what's the point of that? So do I. I think that... Because uh, they're, they they're say being anyone seen, can eat there. The rabbi can eat in my house. I think they're being oh. seen to, to do things right amongst their friends, but they... Go around the corner and find a, find a McDonald's somewhere where there's no other Jewish people. I, I mean, without I mean, I know that I'm having a little defatting session at the moment, which means that yes. the Golden Arches is not necessarily at the top of my list of places to go and eat. <laughs> but oh man, alive! There are times when only that will do. But the other thing, I get myself into trouble with this. I love going to, for example huge discussions about the quality of a Vienna sausage. And there is nothing (laughs) worse than a flaccid Vienna sausage and therefore finding the one with a crisp snap is terribly (laughs) important. And it's only the kosher ones, but not all kosher ones that fit that bill. Similarly, smoked top cider beef, which comes in those packets, Mm. a.k.a kosher bacon is delicious and it's all kosher and i and, and i bite because it, it tastes so good it's but, weird, isn't but it? these things that we choose and because what we don't choose well, the Vienna sausage is i think one of the worst things to cook what why well because it, if you don't get it right at the right point it tends to explode doesn't it oh an exploded vienna sausage is absolutely fine as long as the original was of a quality consistency some of them as i said 
flaccid. Nothing May worse. May I mm. just say at this point yes. that my grandchildren's favourite meal is when I get a Vienna or a um, some sort of Frankfurtery thing. Yes. And I cut it into bits and yes. then I poke spaghetti through it. Poke spaghetti it. through it, yes. And yes. then it, I boil it all yes. and the spaghetti is going through it. Oh, yes, I love that. that is brilliant. It is brilliant. Yeah. That is one of my favourite things to do, along with Nigella's recipe for Marmite spaghetti. That's filth. Oh, I haven't had that. <gasps> oh, oh dirty. If you like cry. Marmite. Oh, I no. love Marmite. Oh, no. dirty. Oh, yeah. Peanut yeah. butter. Give me peanut butter. You can't have peanut butter on spaghetti. I know, but you can't have it on Marmite. No. Oh, Marmite. Oh, yes. Oh. Let's go back to the Jewish thing. <laughs> what do your friends do that you find a bit weird? Keep a kosher home and then go out and eat bacon outside, whereas okay, I so won't eat it at home or out. No, okay. I, don't, I don't eat any of that. So they call it chazurai, but I don't eat any of that outside okay. either. Nor do I. So. No, I, don't, I don't eat that inside or outside. No. Or I, I only eat house, a bacon sandwich or... if I'm in strong protest about something. <laughs> Very sorry. And, and a friend of mine, the only time he eats bacon, he refuses to eat it, which again shows the individuality mm. of all Jews. Mm. He only eats it on Yom Kippur. Well, that makes sense. Do you actually, so seriously, do you think that a lot of it is superstition? You know, people don't eat is it because do, they're scared I, what I will what happen if they do. I think what he's trying to do is he's waiting for that bolt of lightning to come down and strike him because it's yeah, young people. It thing. could be, but what, what but I guess is that it, it teaches you is that as a child, if you are brought up with certain things, and say, for example, the household I was brought up in... it. We initially didn't do milk after meat, and then my mum won that battle, and then we kind of did, and then it was... But there were certain things that we didn't do, and and we never did them. So we never had pork or shellfish in the house, and that was just it. Or out. And, And therefore, it's a conscious decision as and when you set up your own home, as to what you do, as to what your rules are going to be. And I think that's part of it, which other religions don't seem to have this this constant questioning and identity thing. And isn't that a nice thing about it? Because you have got this constant identity and questioning, so it keeps it alive, And and it's important, because once we stop doing all these things, we will lose our identity. Identity is a really important part of it, isn't it? It is. I'm a regular... Smoke salmon, for example. Smoke salmon. I have some... Why is it that only Jews can work out where good smoked salmon comes from? Do you know where it comes from? I'm smoking some in my garage at the moment. Are As you? we speak, I, am, I started smoking my own salmon a year ago because I was fed up with the taste of the shop-bought stuff, which ended up greasy oh, and oily. Oh, there's a certain place down in, in uh, St. John's Wood. Oh, it's good. Yeah. Yes. Which, which place? What, Panzers? Oh, Panzers. Lovely. They do their own... A lovely smoke salmon. Yeah. I, I was just fed up with all the shop-bought stuff. So I've got another one ability? from Ben here. He says, oh. your Ashkenazim is showing Sephardic don't eat filter fish. He's absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ben, you should be presenting this show, not me. Oi, Philip, was he busy? Let's book him. Let's book him for a few. I'd give Ben some gefilte fish, then let him decide. I think he probably Although gefilte fish is, is a very distinctive and... Distinctive. It, it's yeah, a, they're different Jewish it, cultures eat different food. Taste. I'm not so sure. But there's different, you know, we are to it because if you come from, it depends where you come from, you know, if you're Persian Jew or Indian Jew, there's different foods. That's that true. We, we have our own, you know. Why versions. do we as Jewish people spend so much time talking about food, it, even it, though we try and talk yes. about other things? It, it is, always refers to food. We talk about two things, either food or diets, either eating it or depriving ourselves. Right. So, Tony, you've successfully dieted because yes. you were a fatty. I, I never knew you. No. And I wouldn't say that you'd ever been Mr. Fat Kid, but you clearly were. Yeah. Because you told me that yeah. you were. Three stone heavier. Three stone I heavier. I've gone from 14 and a half stone to 11 and a half stone. Oh, that's a weight I can only dream of. 
I which one? Three weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, but stop no. eating the gefilte fish and the Vienna. Well, I haven't eaten any because I've been on a diet three weeks ago. Having been on holiday, worried that people were going to come at me with wet towels and drag me back into the water. I decided to go on a diet. So I've lost a stone and I've got another maybe stone and a half, two stone to go. But you're right. Judy, we, we spend do. our time when we're not eating yeah. Vienna sausages and gefilte fish and, and the all that. Cookery. And we and do. the best Non-fiction books are either diet books or cookery books. Mm. Well, no, yeah. don't they say the, the best Christmas albums are Barbara Streisand, Neil Diamond? <laughs> Choose to better Christmas than anybody else. Oh, oh yeah, we wrote the best songs. Ben, ben tells me that he comments most weeks. He loves the show. He's Sephardic, but he lives in Seattle, so it's a bit oh. hard for him oh. to... Wow, Welcome so people, people are listening and tuning yeah. in from all, mm. over, all over the world. Uh, just in terms of how we make our way through all of this because we haven't got here you know we can't be here forever and we we might have to wrap this up at some point when oh. he's saying wrap it up now i was enjoying myself oh there's so much oh, you feel it? we're be just quiet. getting warmed up yeah exactly <laughs> to you let's start with you judy to okay. you where where does judaism start and stop in terms of this cultural belief that you have for you i think if you cut me up and you'd find jewish all through me i'm just Jewish and the way I taught, my friends are all Jewish. But and I do go to shul regularly, once a year or twice a year. That to me is regular. I try not to go in between. What's the best bit about going? I can look at the time and think, oh my goodness, another quarter of an hour and it's finished. I uh, find it boring. Do you, do you, but my husband wants me to go. Do you go Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? Yeah, yeah that's, that's the times that you, you go. do the high yeah. holies. Yeah. yeah, I do those sometimes. Liz, to you. Uh, well, you I seem think a bit the, keener on all this stuff. Yeah, I, I like the Jewish values and I'm very proud of being Jewish. Uh, Is it the values towards family, towards other people, towards people who are non-Jewish? Well, no, yes, all these things. And, uh, you know, doing good work. I think we're a very caring religion. We do, we ca you know, we do a lot of caring things. I'm also proud that we are so successful, you know, in, in technology and entertainment. You know, I think we, we for, we've... We've got a lot to be proud of being Jews. Before we wrap up, I've just got something to say to Ben because he's asked where a stone fits into the metric system. Ben, a stone is £14, if that helps you. There we go. Uh, every day is About a school six day. six kilos. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yes, that's true, six kilos. Wow. You've got a long way to go over there. Oh, there's a lot of kilos. Sorry, James. <laughs> thanks. Anyway, my thanks to our guests. Tony, of course, who has been uh, my stalwart and interrupting as any good co-presenter should and keep me on the straight and narrow. But also to our other guests, founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carbritz, and community volunteer Liz Hirschkorn. So just before our rabbinic thought of the week, it's time for me, James Max, to say goodbye. Clive Roslin will be back in his usual place next time. But this rabbinic thought... It comes from Rabbi James Barden from Shirai Tzedek, North London Reform Synagogue. The Mishnah and Talmud contain a well-known text which lists seven duties of the human being, not just of the Jew, but of the person. One of these instructs us to accompany the dead. The expression is levayat hamet. More or less all our rituals associated with death are ultimately derived from this obligation. That includes the funeral and the act of burial, in which we participate by adding earth to the grave ourselves, but it also relates to our duties towards the bereaved. The days of sitting Shiva are both about honoring the person who has died and supporting the mourners. It all sounds so simple and natural and wholesome, and indeed many psychologists and therapists say that our Jewish rituals are healthy, offering bereaved people the forms and stages of support that they need. That's good to know. 
However, the reality is that supporting the bereaved is something which a lot of people do not find that easy. It's a very laudable human activity, in every sense meritorious, and perhaps for this reason, individuals who encounter difficulties or obstacles in reaching out to mourners are not going to be very forthcoming in admitting this. And yet it is something that all rabbis hear about. That is, we hear from mourners and bereaved people. In the main, they are puzzled about the absence of contact in certain cases. They expect others to comfort them, or at least to be in touch with them. But sometimes that just doesn't happen in the way they expect. So they're disappointed. The fact is that this is an area where the ordinary human being can do something which is of great value to another, which is truly appreciated. A message of condolence, a phone call, a word of sympathy, going up to someone and wishing him or her long life. It can truly have a huge impact. More than once, people have told me that one single comforting gesture has saved them from despair. So why do some of us remain tongue-tied, shy? Why do we fail to pick up the phone or send the message or approach the bereaved person we suddenly catch sight of? Well, in general British culture, there is the idea that grieving, mourning, is a very strictly private affair. People truly have a genuine fear of intruding or saying the wrong thing. This anxiety afflicts everyone, so I urge us all to overcome it. Secondly, we fear that what we will say or do may come across as ritualized, trite, overly conventional to the point of anodyne. Well, the bereaved aren't in need of an original searching disquisition addressing the depth of their loss or fully acknowledging all the wonderful qualities of the person who died. That is why we have those ritualized conventional formulas. And even if they are existing patterns of words and actions dictated by social mores, etc., they do convey comfort. People really do notice when someone stops them to shake their hand and wish them long life. They don't care that the other person didn't come up with some particularly insightful and heartfelt form of words. Not at all. In fact, something which addresses the specifics of the loss in detail may cause more distress. Generalities help us to protect ourselves from immediate raw pain. In this week's parasha, Chukat, both Miriam and Aaron die, the sister and the brother of Moses. In both cases, the whole community is affected by the loss in one way or another. People mourn, rituals are observed. These practices have a purpose. We are not left on our own to dream up what to do in such distressing situations. We have tried and trusted formulas from the past which not only honor the deceased person, but do give real comfort to the bereaved. never ceases to amaze me whenever I hear any of the rabbinic thoughts how somehow it makes you think of something that you just didn't think of before. And it is so true. The simplest of things can make all the difference. Thank you very much there to Rabbi James Barden from Sharai Tzedek, North London Reform Synagogue, with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Paul Charney from the Zionist Federation, expressing his concerns over Palestine Expo. Alec Nakamuli telling us about the Sephardi Voices exhibition on at the Jewish Museum at the moment. To Jason Blair on his amazing career shift into the world of glassblowing. Special thanks to our guest chair for the schmooze, James Max. Clive Rosin will be back next week. Thanks also to our other contributors and, of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our 
our producers, Tony Honickberg, Sue Greenberg and Harley Baptiste. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find the facility to listen to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the Studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.